So have you ever had something that you've done your whole life, and you think, well, what I do is fine, and then one day you find out you're doing it wrong? If you're on social media, yeah, hands go up. On social media, Facebook and Twitter and all those things, these clickbait posts come across all the time, and the basic thing is, you're doing it wrong. From how you pour juice from a carton, oh, I've been doing it wrong, and it splashes everywhere, to how you drain your pasta, I always pour it in the colander. They say, no, the colander goes in the, I don't know, to how you sit on the toilet, and we're not going to put the picture up for that one, but it's all over social media, to how you eat Tic Tacs. Now, okay, so they say that the Tic Tac lid has this little thing right here, so you get one or two, and that's how you get your Tic Tacs. Okay, they say that's the better way. Everybody knows the best way to eat Tic Tacs, right? <laughs> Until it's full. But they say that there's a better way to get it done. I, I was listening to it. It's not, it's, there's no shortage of people telling you there's a better way to do what you've already been doing. I, I was listening to a, a sermon this week, a podcast, and the preacher gave a parenting insight about a struggle that we have at our house and how he addresses it. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, man, that is biblical and it's sound and it would make a real difference. I'm not going to tell you what that thing is because I want to make sure that I can actually do it before I say, hey, here's this thing, and then I fall flat on my face. Also, my kids will be here at 11 o'clock. I don't want them to hear what I say, and then they know what my tricks are. But when I heard it, I thought, man, that makes so much sense. Biblically, as a father modeling faith for my kids, I can do better. There's a better way. Or when I was 19 years old, uh, the summer before my junior year of college, I spent the, the whole summer in England. I was doing an internship over there. And I remember still a meal that we were sharing with some English people. And I think it was probably haggis. Anybody know what haggis is? Okay, sheep's intestines stuffed with oatmeal or cheese or meat or uh, rice. Whatever they could find in their pantry, basically, they stuff it in this intestine and then cook it. And they're like, happy supper. All right. <laughs> Well, I'll try anything once. So I'm, I'm eating my haggis. And as an American, what do we do? We cut. We lay down the knife. We pick up. We eat. I'm not going to eat up here because it's rude to talk with my mouth full. But then we, we cut. Lay down the knife. Actually, I did that wrong, didn't I? We, we cut. Lay down the knife. Switch. Eat. Cut. Switch. Eat. English people said, what are you doing? So what do you mean, what are you doing? I'm eating my haggis. What are you doing feeding me this stuff? And they said, you know, there's a better way, right? Anybody eat the European way? Okay. Keep the fork upside down. Cut with the right hand. Eat with the fork upside down. If there's something else, you slide it on the back of the fork. Eat that way. So since I'm 19 years old, I've eaten left-handed upside down. I'm like, that's such a better way. It's so much more efficient. Then lay down, switch, cut, lay down, switch. All right? Okay, so maybe you don't want to learn anything from Europeans. I understand. <clears throat> I learned something else in my 50s. All right? Now, these may not be green enough to really work. Kroger was out of green bananas. Who knows? When you eat a banana, how do you peel it? Grab the top. Okay. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's actually working the way I wanted it to. It doesn't work. By the time you get this done, okay, See what happened to the top of my banana right here? Mashed. So I'm watching a video one day, and it shows a monkey eating a banana. Has anybody ever seen this? A monkey takes a banana, goes to the bottom, peels every time. I was like, what? 
I've been eating my bananas wrong. My... So I might be too proud to learn from Europeans, but I'm not too proud to learn from a monkey. <laughs> There's a better way to peel a banana. I had no idea. There are things that we've been doing our whole lives. We think, well, that's the way you do it. And then we find out, okay, maybe there's nothing wrong with the way I did it before, but maybe there's a better way. And that's how progress is made, right? I mean, thank God that some caveman at one point said, what if put meat in fire before eat? <laughs> Belly feel better after, you know. Progress, innovation, those things come from saying, we could be more efficient, we could be more effective, we could be more profitable if we acknowledge, you know what, the way that I've been doing it might not be the best way. There might be a way to do it better. All of that is by way of introduction to a series on marriage that I'm calling A Better Way. Now, I'm not here to say that anyone is doing marriage wrong, but simply to consider that there might be a better way to think about marriage. So today and for the next three weeks, with great trepidation and trembling, I'm going to talk about marriage. Now, today's message is more philosophical, big picture. I'm going to try to get practical the next three weeks. The, the Build Your Marriage retreat this weekend might destroy everything that I thought I was going to say. And I'll find out, oh, there are even better ways than what I thought. But I want you to know, today's message makes sense for people who follow Jesus. Because he informs the life he lived, the things that he taught, the hope that he gives inform and form the way Christians do things. If you're not a Jesus follower, then listen in today and maybe it'll at least make sense for why people who follow Jesus follow Jesus in practical ways. But today is going to be a big picture, picture of marriage. But here's the challenge as I seek to do that today. You all are the challenge as I seek to do that today. I don't want to lose my unmarried friends in the crowd. And, and I hope that this will help us all have a perspective on marriage that even if we don't have one, we have friends who do who we can encourage and support in their marriage. And so within this crowd, there are people all over the spectrum in their relation to marriage. Go ahead and throw that grid up there. This is the first one, just as I thought about where I've been in my life. So we're people who are gonna and not gonna, people who wanna and don't wanna. All right, now, there are two squares that are pretty happy on here. That's the gonna wanna. I wanna get married, I'm gonna get married. And the people that don't wanna, not gonna. They're pretty happy too. All right, I spent 37 and a half years of my life in that bottom right corner. I don't wanna, I'm not gonna. It was pretty good. And then I saw Kelly and I said, mm, maybe I wanna. <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm gonna, and here we are. Okay. Two squares that are pretty happy, two squares that are not happy. One is the I wanna, but I'm not gonna. Even worse, I'm gonna, but I don't wanna. That's a bad place to be, isn't it? There are people here who used to be, you're thinking, man, I wish I still was. There are people who are saying, I used to be and may never again. I'm not doing that again. There are people who are and can't imagine life without being married. And the people who are and try not to let themselves imagine what life would be like without because, oh, that sounds pretty good sometimes. So what do I have to, what, what can I say that will be meaningful to such a diverse audience today? Again, that's a good question. And I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm glad Kelly's not here because she might hurt herself 
whiplash, nodding so hard. I'm not an expert. But I do think it's important for the church to stand up, to stand out for godly marriage in a culture that craves connection but devalues commitment. And we need to not only say, but we need to show there is a better way to do this. Now, the typical approach to marriage, where a lot of problems arise, and really it happens in any relationships, but since we're specifically talking about marriage in this series, the the way that we peel it from the top is to say, well, I just want to be happy. I want somebody who can make me happy. If only I could get married, I would be happy. If only I were married to the right person, I would be happy. If only my wife would start doing this, if only my husband would stop doing that, well, then I'd be happy. That person is responsible for making me happy. You know, there's, there's this, we know that the fairy tale version that ends, and they lived happily ever after, isn't true for everybody else. But we sure feel like it ought to be true for me, right, when you're living in it. Well, I know that's a myth, but why can't it be my reality? Somebody make me happy. I read a quote this week. It said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) Who said that? Throw it up there. Socrates. Whose wife apparently never read anything that he wrote or he'd be in big, big trouble. But if you're married and it hasn't all been happy, 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 well, it couldn't be that you're looking for the wrong thing, right? It must be that you're with the wrong person or that person needs to step up their game. And if you aren't married, then finding this magical person with the power to to bestow happiness like pixie dust becomes a mythic quest, Look, married folks, can we all agree that marriage can be hard sometimes? Eighty years ago, a woman named Catherine Porter wrote a profound essay about marriage. And in it, she wrote of a young woman facing, and I'm quoting, the oldest and ugliest dilemma of marriage. She is horrified, full of guilt and forebodings because she is finding out little by little that she is capable of hating her husband, whom she loves faithfully. She goes on to write how the woman has to hide her feelings from him because she wants desperately to keep his love. That's the paradox, the challenge of marriage. Now, this is from a Christian marriage book written to give hope. But we have to be honest, marriage can be hard sometimes. But that doesn't mean there's no such thing as happily married. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if happiness is your primary pursuit... Marriage is a tough place to find it on a regular basis. But there is a better way. Now, a lot of the material in this series is coming from a book called Sacred Marriage. And I want you to see the subtitle on that book. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Maybe God cares about something greater, more meaningful than our happiness. Maybe he wants to form our character. Now, here's the thing about holiness, about becoming more godly. Who does God hold accountable for your holiness, for your spiritual growth? Do you get to outsource that to somebody else? Married or single, who's responsible for your pursuit of holiness? We'll talk more in a week or two about making somebody else bear the burden of your happiness. 
But no other person is responsible either for your happiness or for your holiness. But marriage provides the perfect opportunity to grow in your spiritual life. I mean, you're in it. You might as well, might as well, make, might as well make good use of the time while you're there. So here are the chapter titles from this sacred marriage book. Marriage teaches us to love. Marriage teaches us to respect others. Good marriage can foster good prayer. Marriage exposes our sin. Marriage teaches us to forgive. Marriage can build in us a servant's heart. Sex in marriage can provide spiritual insights and character development. Marriage can make us more aware of God's presence. Marriage can develop our spiritual calling, mission, and purpose. Now let me ask, would you rather experience that kind of growth in your spiritual life? Or do you just want to be happy? What do you think God values more? Now again, if you're not married, but you're following Jesus... Your primary calling, your primary pursuit shouldn't be to find someone else to deliver you from this season of your life. This season of your life is a perfect time to cultivate that kind of Christian character. The sacred marriage book isn't saying that only in marriage can God accomplish those things. I mean, Jesus never married, and it didn't seem to impede his spiritual growth too much. Can we agree? The Apostle Paul said when it comes to serving God, an unmarried person has an advantage because they're less distracted. They're more free to pursue the things of God. So that is its own blessing. But let me put it this way. Whether you're married or not, and this is from the Sacred Marriage book, we'll live our happiest, most joy-filled lives when we're walking in obedience to our perfectly heavenly, perfect Heavenly Father. That next part's supposed to come later. Now, would you rather pursue that happy, joy-filled, obedient life or do you want to continue to look to somebody else who's probably a little less flawed than you are and put on them the responsibility for your well-being? Which do you think God wants more for you? So today I want to look at one command Jesus gave and apply it to how we view marriage. Now, Jesus didn't give a lot of instructions about marriage. He talked about marriage as an illustration of the kingdom of God. He used it as context for other teachings about holiness and obedience and morality. He didn't give a lot of commands about marriage. So what command am I, am I going to use? What are you going to say, David? What, what did Jesus have to say? Is he going to say, love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? Turn the other cheek? Forgive 70 times 7. I used that up in the first month, I think. <laughs> or maybe the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated. What's well, even better than that? Andy Stanley calls it the platinum rule. And that is treat others the way God through Christ has treated you. Treat other people the way God has treated you. Here's what Jesus said in John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. Now, that makes sense. Of course, it's my husband. It's my wife. I'm, I'm going to love this person as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Now, he said this at the Last Supper. And if we just hold to the immediate context, as I've loved you in the last hour and a half, he's already washed their feet in an act of embarrassing selflessness to the point that Peter was like, Jesus, what are you doing? Stop. Don't do that. He's announced his coming betrayal and released Judas. Go, go do what you have to do. 
He's predicted Peter's betrayal. Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny you know me three times. And yet, rather than reject or expel or publicly out him as a failure, Jesus continued to love, continued to teach, continued to build their character without regard for his own happiness right until the very end. So love each other as I've loved you. But that's not all he said. He said, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is why the church needs to talk about marriage. Not just talk about it, but demonstrate that there is a better way. Because how we love one another, how we encourage one another to love one another, whether we're married or not, is meant to be compelling, irrefutable evidence that God's love has rescued us from a fruitless life of pursuing selfishly our own happiness and has invited us to participate in his life of self-giving love. There's an old story Jewish rabbis tell about how God chose the spot to build his temple. It says two brothers shared a field and a mill. And every day they would go work together tending their crops. And at harvest time, they would take whatever grain they collected and whatever flour they ground. And they would divide it equally and each would take his portion home. Well, one brother was single. And he worried The other was married and had several kids. And so the single brother worried that his married brother, with all these mouths to feed, certainly, well, he needs more grain than I do. So at night, he would sneak out, take some grain from his own stores, and go to his brother's granary and deposit there to make sure his brother had all that he needed. Well, the married brother worried that his single brother, he doesn't have any kids to take care of him in his old age. He's not going to have enough to provide for himself. So at night, he would take some of the grain from his storehouse and sneak to his brother's granary and deposit there. And the story goes that one night, they met halfway. And each realized what the other was doing, and there on that dark, moonlit road, they embraced. And it says, God on witnessing their meeting, said, this is a holy place. This is a place of love. This is where my temple will be built. Now, that's not a true story, but you get the point. And here's what the book said, the Sacred Marriage book said, commenting on that story. The holy place is the spot where human beings discover each other in love. In that place, God is made known. The way Jesus said it was, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, Jesus repeated that command just a short time later at the Last Supper in John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. There it is again. Then greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, for one's wife, for one's husbands, for one's married friends, single people, for one's single friends, married people. What if your vision of marriage wasn't to find someone or to be with someone who would make you happy, but to become someone who makes holy whatever spot you're in by being discovered in acts of selfless love, laying down your life, laying down your rights, laying down your quest for happiness for the good of others and so that God can be made known? Doesn't that sound like a better way? The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about relationships. 
within the church, all through his writings. And we're going to look over the next couple of weeks at things he specifically said about marriage. But in Paul's writings, it really didn't matter what relationship he was pointing to, whether it was husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, any brothers and sisters in the faith, Jews and Gentiles, all of them. Every command Paul gave within those relationships was linked directly back to Jesus' command, love each other as I've loved you. Everything about how we treat one another is anchored in how God treated us first. What Jesus did in giving us his life, surrendering his right to happiness, to show us that the way of love is the better way. So I'm going to read some of Paul's words from his letter to the Corinthian church. And I just, I didn't see this anywhere. I kind of had to do some mental gymnastics, but I tried to filter what he's saying through, okay, how does this apply to marriage? And I want you to try to do the same as I read these words. He's talking about big picture salvation things, but he's also talking about the practical day-to-day. Here's what it's like to live with other people. He starts by saying, Christ's love compels us. His love is such a beautiful, irresistible force. How could we not live in response to what he's done? So here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. How might that change a marriage by itself? But for him who died for them and was raised again. We don't love others because they've earned it, because they're deserving Like I said, marriage can be hard sometimes. But we love others because he is deserving. His love compels us to love the way he loves. He continues, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What's a worldly point of view? You need to make me happy. No, we don't look at each other that way anymore. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we didn't understand. We had an immature understanding. We do so no longer. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. There's a new way to think about things. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we think about that as, okay, we need to reconcile with people outside the faith and bring them to know God. But what if the ministry of reconciliation starts in our own homes, starts on our own families? I have a ministry of healing, of bringing together, of pursuing the good of the other above myself. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That ever happened in your home, married folks? You didn't do this for me. You failed to meet my expectations. You let me down. I'm not happy. I release you from that. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's our identity. That's our calling. That's our purpose. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God so you can be reconciled with one another. Marriage is a living lab for reconciled living where how we love each other can be so compelling because it's selfless, it's other-serving, it's like the love of Jesus that the gospel is put on display through us. Then 
Again, pointing back to what Jesus has done for us, that God didn't have to do anything that he did, but he did the most selfless act imaginable. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I would say, yes, Christ's love is compelling. So we shouldn't, shouldn't be able to help ourselves to say, I'm going to seek a better way. I'm going to love like Jesus loved me, the way of holiness over the pursuit of happiness. So here's what I want us to do this week. Let's simply be honest. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. We're going to talk about being honest with mates and prospective mates and friends who are walking with you whatever path you're on. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But today it's just time for some honest reflection and prayer. And here are two things I want us to wrestle with. Number one, how much time do you spend thinking about your happiness or your unhappiness? And on whom do you place that burden? Well, I'm not happy because. Be honest. Do you spend a lot of time thinking, man, I'm just not happy? Number two, Christian people, how much time do you spend thinking about your holiness? about allowing God to use whatever season you're in to shape the character of Christ in you. Because here's the thing. If you spend too much time pursuing happiness, holiness is going to be real hard to find. Because happiness will chase you all kinds of places. It's over here, it's over here, it's over there. And holiness gets lost. But if you dedicate yourself to the pursuit of holiness, becoming a more gracious, merciful, kind, gentle, peace-filled, loving person who reflects the love of the Father for you, what do you think is going to come as a byproduct? Not just happiness, but joy, deep, abiding, rich, satisfying, enduring Joy, that's the life God created you for. That's the life God wants for you. We want that for you too. Let's pray. Father, you alone are sufficient to meet all our needs. You have provided our deepest need through your Son. So God, as we immerse ourselves in his teaching, in his way of life. God, as we cling to the hope that can only be found in him. God, may that impact every part of our lives, the most vital relationships we're in, whether married, single, friends, work partners. God, in all things, help us like Jesus to lay down ourselves and to simply cling to you and your will for our lives. God, this is my prayer for all of us in Jesus' name.